At JobLab, we believe in equality and action. Strong, creative people have the power to make a difference. My voice is coming to you from the JobLab studio. Make your voice heard just as clearly by voting. Broadcast your message by participating in one of the most important elections of our generation. Get started by using vote.gov and registering today. Hello and welcome to In Conversation, a Dublab podcast where each week we will bring you interviews from the Dublab Radio Archives. All right. What an honor okay. it is to be here with you. Yeah. Kilan mm-hmm. Philip Coran right. in town from Chicago. Yeah. Great uh, multi-instrumentalist, mm-hmm. composer, astronomer, thinker. Um, had the opportunity of uh, listening to you in conversation and um, seeing you present your music before. And uh, I'm delighted to be here to talk to you today here in Los Angeles. Yeah, it's a great place. Yeah, welcome to the last <laughs> bookstore. Yeah, this is really a nice atmosphere here. And uh, naturally... Los Angeles is known for being uh, advanced in its thinking, you know. I've been here several times, and it's always a privilege to come back. Uh, The sun sets here um, more imposing than anywhere else in the world, I think. So that's what I see Los Angeles as uh, affected by the sunsets. You're in town to uh, perform a concert with uh, your sons, the Hypnotic yeah. Brass Ensemble. Yes, yeah, And I, I feel like if people were to <clears throat> learn about you and look you up online, they're going to hear or be exposed to a lot of references to Sun Ra and, yeah. you know, to your artistic heritage ensemble and to the formation of the... Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians. Yes. But today, specifically, I wanted to talk to you about um, one key thing, which I think will just sort of allow us to open up in, in various good. directions. But uh, mm-hmm. that is, what is your vision for the future of this planet? Well, that's a good one. <clears throat> I see that we are in the beginning of a, I won't say a new cycle, but an old cycle that's been, that's 25,920 years old. That's why I spoke to you about the uh, Mayan legend of the, this being the end of the world, December the 21st, because uh, a lot of, they had put a movie out on it, and you know, it's been talked for some time about this fact. And uh, I've done, uh, research in archaeoastronomy over the last maybe 35, 40 years since I was first introduced to the concept by a man named Krupp who put out several books on that. You may have a book here on it. But uh, <clears throat> uh, I had started out in the 50s studying musicology and dealing with the culture. Uh, I found that Astronomy had a lot to do with the music, you know, and especially in in ancient India, they had uh, some sixty-two thousand modes in their uh, rules for 
relating to the cosmos and the community. That's, you know, the river city states, uh, Mahenjo-Daro and uh, the one, uh, Harappa. <laughs> anyway, uh, as I began to study other cultures, I found out that their music and their astronomy were related also. And so eventually, over so many years, it began to reverberate over and over with new totals. Even coming here today, I mean yesterday, I, I got some new totals. So what I wanted to clear up was what I have uh, discerned about this end of the world thing. <laughs> because some people <clears throat> are frightened, they have fears and things like that. And it is that we have entered a new cycle and these cycles affect everything in the whole cosmos, and our part of the cosmos anyway. And uh, it's uh, there. Everything is based on the precession of the equinox. There are many cosmic factors that we adhere to, but it is the precession of the equinox that has the most influence in connecting the ancient world and the modern world, you know, with knowledge. And that precession of the equinox uh, is caused, most people know, by the wobble of the Earth's incline of 23 degrees and 26 minutes. And so that wobble drifts us back, back, back until in 25,920 years we'll be back in the same spot again. And so <clears throat> knowing that, I just thought it was just a factor. But then in beginning to deal with cosmology of various cultures, you find out that was the primary cycle. Uh, and uh, like the Bible, you know, everyone, you know, I was reading about this guy running for the presidency, I can't remember, Santorum, mm -hmm. and he was talking about the devil this and that stuff, you know. People reach into this Bible and take all sort of things out of it. But in the book of Revelation, the fourth and fifth chapter, it speaks about this very same cycle. And it talks about a man on a throne with a book in his hand. See, well, that's the same thing that my name was when I was given this name in China. Although I don't think the imam there understood the, that ancient relationship he may have, but I doubt it. But uh, he was dealing with the name Kalan, and cut is spirit in the old world, you know. So it was Kalan, not Kilan. And when the British interpreted it, they interpreted it as K-E. And, you know, that's the reason I didn't want to deal with the name after that mm -hmm. because of it. But getting back to the precession of the equinox, when you go into the Mayan calendar, that's what they were predicting. Uh, but their prediction is the winter solstice. And uh, in the older world, much older than the Mayan world, it was the summer solstice dubbed the tree of life. And so it was death or the end of things in the winter solstice. And uh, I think a lot of people are confused about it. This whole period is involved in the changing. And what changes is the position of the sun in the uh, uh, solstice, summer solstice. 
And naturally, the winter solstice is going to adhere to something, but it is the, the hand, the book, the breaking of the seals in the book of Revelation means that a heavenly body is passing through this position. And that heavenly body has to be the sun. And the sun has to deal with the precession of the equinox that the summer solstice is in that book. And that's what we've come to. I want to clear that up because uh, a lot of people are uh, fumbling through books and old writings and things and trying to solve these mysteries. But there's only one real mystery, and that is that we have lost our connection to the cosmic living because that is the only law that is, uh, what is some people say, unimpeachable, you know. That law of cosmic relationship is why all the ancient cultures studied in animals. And they have animals as their guide because the animal is chained to cosmic law. And so what we call totems in the old world were dealing with adopting an animal to study. Like in Australia, you have families that study the uh, kangaroo. And those members have to go out and master a communication system with the kangaroo in order to become a man, you know. And so I've, learning these things, have gone through several animals as uh, uh, what you call uh, the movement around uh, disturbs me, but uh, totems. Mm -hmm. All right, so I've gone through several stages of totems with animals and trying to get this connection between the animal's behavior and the cosmos and then adopting that for use in uh, our life. Uh, what, do you, what do you feel is the, is the primary cause of our disconnection from cosmic life? Do you feel like we, we've come out of tonality, like the way you were, you were well, talking Well, we're about dominated that? by our society did not inherit the knowledge of the, from the old world. They've, they've been piecing together knowledge since what, for the last six, seven, eight hundred years. You know, piecing it together instead of it being taught by the shaman and the holy people down through the ages. You know, like in India, you got Sanskrit. And so when you go into Sanskrit, you get those old, old uh, rules and laws and connections. But I guess you're going through these cycles, the 25 year, 25,920 year cycle. We lost it, and now we're coming back into regaining this connection to our cosmic law, which is the only law in existence. Man is not capable of establishing a law. He can only discover a law that is there, because what I'm talking about is eternity. Mm -hmm. We are eternal beings. Mm -hmm. There never was a time when we didn't exist, and there will never be a time when we are destroyed. We, we have... We are doing people, and that was taught in the old world to the children, so they n knew they were born into a cycle of, uh, of expressing uh, this type of life in their eternity, mm -hmm. but had been here before and would be here again. And so all of the enlightened people of the past had some concept of their eternity. We live in a world where there's is focus on death and birth. Those two things are so important, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's only a type of cycle. 
like some of the cosmic cycles. Now, what we have to do is we have to begin to live in order of the cycles of cosmic uh, events. The sun. Uh, you take, well, let's look at the, the latitudes effect on people. That's why we have different people, because they migrated to various latitudes. The original people were on the equator in the rainforest. Well, there, you have 12 hours of light every day of the year and 12 hours a night. So then you live on a consistent basis. You, you know, you eat at the same time, your toilets at the same time. Everything you do is consistently the same time, year out, throughout your life. And so that is a sustaining type of rhythm and harmony that does not require hospitals and a whole lot of emergencies and things that we have fallen into. But when they migrated out of the, the equator, they went to the various latitudes where the light fluctuates. In Chicago, where I live, <clears throat> we're 42 degrees north latitude. And so we have as much as 15 hours and eight or nine minutes uh, light in the summer and nine hours and something uh, night. Then in the winter, it's just the reverse. At the winter solstice, we have 15 hours, nine, nine minutes of darkness. Well, there's a great adjustment of the body going from that much light. That's the difference in light is six hours. Mm -hmm. And I've already computed that, that those six hours mean that 42 uh, degrees north latitudes give me six times seven. So then every seven degrees latitude, we have hours difference in light. And that light has to be compensated for. We're not studying those type of things. We're running after trying to find out when the universe began. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of other stupid stuff, not about what our lives are related to. Light is everything. When you go into the underground system, it's primarily initiated by light. Light is the, is the substance you talk about the vitamin D balance in the body. And uh, if you look at how the eye functions with the endocrine system, light is everything. And so if you're getting 15 hours of light in the summertime and it switches over, that's a big change and a big effect on the body. Mm -hmm. uh, go further north or further south, you know, you've got a change of light. And people are thinking about comfort. They're thinking about how warm it is or how cold it is, you know. But these things change. What we have to adjust to is the way the body is related to the cosmos, period. Now, I could talk a week about various other means, like when we study the ancient knowledge of the chakras, which uh, is the endocrine system, and the way the body behaves there, uh, how the difference in color the skin, you know, the melanin in the skin. Well, uh, Los Angeles, actually, well, San Francisco really launched this uh, studies of melanin on a, a very large scale back in around 85 or 86 and uh, developed a group of scientists who did research and, and developed that up. Now you've got melanin used in all of your, your polymers for strength. 
uh, your automobile. And, uh, you know, you get a package, now you can't open it. That's <laughs> mm-hmm. using melanin in that uh, polymer plastic to make it tougher. <clears throat> uh, what I'm saying, <clears throat> in so many words, is that we have to shift our focus and submit to knowledge that was already here, realizing that we're not advanced. We have, we have gone the other direction from knowledge. And so we live in country. Look how our people are obese and how they're out of shape. And we're talking about the balance of the body. Everywhere I go, when I tell people I'm 85, they said, man, you look good, you know, as though you're supposed to look bad when, right, you, right. when you get this age. Uh, that's, not, that, that's how far away we are from nature mm-hmm. and from the natural cycles. But the biggest crime of all is that we are such a little speck in the universe, and we ignore it. People don't even look up at night. The only thing they notice is the moon. Mm-hmm. And all of the knowledge is there. Yeah. And it's always been there, and people have always, every culture, the, the, the Inca cultures in uh, South America. I mean, I think it's gone as far as that people have even been disconnected from the ability to see what's up there because of all of the pollution. So, I mean, like a lot well, of people... Well, you can see it. A lot of people don't even get the access that they should. Like, I've heard you talk yeah. about access. Yeah. Access That's to important. information, access to uh-huh. instruments, access to the ability to be able to do some of these it things. It means a lot. If you look up at the stars and there's no stars up there, if you, like, look around and there's no trees anywhere... Well, let me tell you. them all down. Yeah, but we're, see, we're, we're disconnecting from the access to be able yeah, to Yeah, I don't that. see that. that. That may be a factor, and I have to admit that it is. But having studied stars myself as a black person in America, I've, I've, had, I've had a very difficult time trying to get people to even look up. To even look up. Well, look up. Well, yeah. You know, I had a place in, where I lived in Chicago. There was a railroad embankment there, and it was lifted maybe 30 or 40 feet above the street. And so I would go up there and look at the stars, you know. And I tried to get someone with me. I didn't want to do it by myself, but it was so beautiful. Yeah. And so I would go up there and observe. And after about a year's time, I had really struck all, you know. I had seen Mm -hmm. that rhythm and that harmony. And then Orion just blew me away. (laughs) And so I went to the Adler Planetarium and started taking classes. And, uh, this was in the early 90s? No, it was 61. Oh, oh, early 60s, right. 61. But it was in the exactly. early 90s that you started volunteering there. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I volunteered in the 90s. I had to uh, write, uh, in fact, I wrote a, a, one of my latest pieces uh, for, uh, called African Skies. Yeah. There. Uh, one of my friends I had been discussing with him because I was doing research in Adler all along. But uh, uh, one of the fellows I would discuss this with is a floor manager and still my friend named of Ed Smith. And uh, they decided to have a show and give Africa credit for uh, astronomy and their daily lives. And to my knowledge, it's the first time that Africa was given credit for any science uh, in Chicago, if not anywhere else. And so um, someone told them, if you're going to have a program on African skies, you should go get someone who knows something about African skies. So they called me in. Yeah. 
And uh, while I was discussing the show and, the, you know, its dynamics, one of them says, uh, I see you're a composer. Would you like to write some music for us? And so I said it would be a delightful challenge. And therefore, I went out and did a sample, and they said, okay, we took a contract to it. Yeah. And the show lasted 10 years. I mean, it was the best thing they had. I mean, it boosted their tennis and everything. And so and we, the music accompanied the show. Yes. Right. Yeah. So everybody got exposed to yeah. it as well. Well, that was, you know, in a planetarium, you let the seats back, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. turn the lights down. I said, I got them. <laughs> and so I used harps, and I used two harps. And uh, what are stars? Bases, huh? What are stars? What are stars? Yeah, what, like 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 when you when you look at the stars, mm -hmm. and then you think about our interaction here. I mean, everything is vibrational. Everything is you know an energy. Well, I go to spin. Okay, spin. Spin. Okay. All right. Spin is the smallest thing in existence, okay. and it's the largest thing in existence. See, people are looking for some substance to uh, attach everything to, but it's a motion, mm -hmm. and that motion. Uh, dominates everything in your body. Spin is uh, how we relate to one another. Mm -hmm. That's how you see a, a woman walking down the street and you say, wow, you know, that's spin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know. Same thing you, when you look up at the stars. It's the same thing. Right. You're attracted by it, and that's mm -hmm. what started me in astronomy, in astronomy in the first place. I saw a big X in the sky, and I looked up, and I had never paid any attention, didn't know anyone that had ever paid it any attention. But I said, what's the X? I've never seen that before. And the next night I come out, and there's this X again. And so I began to see that it was something that was there every night. But gradually they disappeared. Well, I didn't understand anything about the rhythms of the heavens. So I, but I wanted to know what this X was. So I went in the books, and I looked, and I couldn't find but three stars. That's the Triangle of Summer, we call it. Uh, that's the Deneb in the constellation Cygnus the Swan, and uh, Vega in the constellation Lyra the Heart, and Altair in the constellation uh, Aquila the Eagle. That's the Triangle, mm -hmm. the Summer Triangle. It's up there all summer. There's circumpolar stars that stay up there. And so the, the two bottom stars that make up the X were Saturn and Jupiter. Mm. And I had to go and take a class to, to discover that. And yeah. once, once I got into it, you know, I literally. But the thing that really boosted me into the boosted me in the sky was I wanted to get a heart because I knew that, uh, I, you know, everybody says to me every time they see me playing a harp, say, I always wanted to play one. Well, they never did anything about it. I did something about mine. Yeah. What kind of harp do you play? Well, I play the troubadour harp, which is the ancient harp. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, I, I don't care for pebbles and harp. Just change the pitch of a string, yeah. to me, is not too cool. <laughs> is, is the troubadour harp the same as the Egyptian harp? The same thing. That's, that's or the Mexican harp, uh -huh. or the right. Japanese harp, okay. or several harps, the old harps. Okay. But the pedal was more or less uh, an accommodation for the 12-tone scale, which is a violation of nature, too. 
Right. <clears throat> and so I've heard you talk about this before about people being oriented in in, in harmony that is disharmonious from the cosmos, but yeah, you're but actually talking yes. about melody and being melodically, modally oriented with the cosmos. So I, I've heard you talk about this. Before. I have a CD. I brought it along for this purpose because people don't. That uh, I told you how how long the um, cycle is for the uh, precession of the equinox. 25,920 years. Right. And so uh, I also told you this is the central picture of the universe, right? What note is it? Well, you can call it whatever note you want to. Ah, what do you call it? And that's... <laughs> well, I don't tell everything. Okay, okay, okay <laughs> You know. I'm going to call but, it a spin. That's, the, uh, that's the sound of spin right That's there. right. Now, now, this here is the sound. The central picture of the universe, of the cosmos. All right. This is exactly between a man and a woman's voice. If a woman's... I thought I'd turn this thing on. Oh, you even got the harp on your phone. You get, you get a harp playing on your phone, even. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, yeah. what I'm saying is that this is important to understand that a woman's voice begins here and goes up, a median pitch range. And a man's voice begins here and goes down. And so this pitch is sitting right between a man and a woman's voice. And yet we don't understand that and we violate it. We have men who speak and sing up in this female range, and we've got women <laughs> who sing and, and speak in the lower range without understanding that the benefits of the cosmic living will put them in their proper range. You follow me? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I kind of got off there, but I wanted to establish the, the we, we, primary pitch. Now. Can, can, you, can you talk about harmony? Well, I wanted, this is, this oh, is this what is I'm it. saying. This, this is, is what, what I'm speaking yeah, about, okay. see? Okay. Uh, 256 uh, times 101.25 would give you 25,920. Mm. All right? That's the prime pitch. Mm -hmm. uh, 288 times 96 would give you 25,920. That's C, I mean D. E, 324 times 80 gives you 25, 9, 20. You see? So uh, F is the only one that's a little off because we deal basically with the pentatonic in the ancient time. All right, so we go to G, and G is 384, which is a very powerful symbolic uh, frequency. Um, and that's the fifth, C to G. Uh, that's 67 and a half times to give you 25, 9, 20. Uh, A, 432, not 440, because that was set up at a conference in London back in the 20s to change the pitch to 440, and that's where things are messed up now. But uh, Why do you think these things were changed? Just because the, the, the novel was know. not They right? didn't know. Yeah. They didn't know. You know, I have a song that I always do perform now, uh, called Zen College, where I dedicated to the last man that, that advocated natural uh, relationships in music. But anyway, I was giving you these various pitches, adding up to 25,920, showing you 
that way back in antiquity, they knew, they knew the cosmic relationship of sound and the inner relationship of notes to one another. And so that music was not something that just accidentally popped out. It was, uh, it was everything. Now, when you go back into the Greeks, they, all of their teachings, uh, Plato, Aristotle, Pythagoras, all of them, uh, who were influenced by uh, Egyptian or Kemetic teachings, they speak about the relationship of music and its effect on people. But they were getting as, as remnants. They were not originators of this thought. And this thought was much, you know, thousands, maybe millions of years older than what they had access to. Uh, so what we have to do is, and that's, that's why I'm speaking in this in this context now, because I'm 85, I don't know uh, how much time I have or anything, but I would like to put the knowledge out there to turn people into uh, dealing with cosmic connection in everything, with the body, with the mind, sound, all your senses, your taste, your, your food, uh, your smell, your touch, all of this. It's very important. Mm -hmm. But we redirect our lives to enlightenment and realize, first of all, that we had this knowledge and lost it. That is, we're not advanced now. We are the opposite of advancement. The other thing is that you hear these common references to race. There's no such thing. There's no scientific definition for race. And the scientists know this. They've tried to prove it down through the years, and they can't do it. And so that's an archaic dead end. Uh, everybody's African. You all come from Africa, one way or another, through one process or another. Everybody's an African. And so when you start back there, you can get things straightened out. Not, under, not uh, taking the pictures as denigrates this people or that people, like people in New Guinea, you know, they live a more primitive type of lifestyle, but they are more connected to the cosmos than we are. <clears throat> and so therefore they get more mileage out of their bodies and their culture than we get with our automobiles and planes and rockets and everything else. See, So that's why I'm revealing these things. For years and years I kept this only to uh, because the ancestors did not teach everybody the masses. They mm -hmm. only taught people who qualified. And I kept this knowledge to myself but the world is progressively more ignorant now than they were even 10 years ago. And so I wanted to put these keys out there in case they want to challenge this, uh, want to look into it, they can open up more knowledge. You have all these books here uh, written about by knowledgeable people, and uh, it, it enriches us, but the books have not brought us to a better world. The books have brought us to accepting lies right along with uh, truth. And so it's a system. What university you go, some of our more enlightened professors, no less than uh, people who never went to school at all because they are more in tune with their inner self. And there is a dual life that we have to satisfy. Everything is not external. And books are basically external entities. You look out here for this, look out there for that. Why can't you look in since you've been here before? Why can't you tap that resource 
of your ancient identity. And so these are the things that I wanted to put on the table and let people challenge themselves on. Mm-hmm. You know, not me, because I got what I was looking for. And, and the <clears throat> average person that is just living their life and interested in some sort of uh, growth and expansion hears what you're saying in this video and, and decides that they're interested in kind of changing and, 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 and just, you know, graduating, moving forward into a greater realization of who they are, you know, consciously. Where, did, where, where would you have them start? I, I would have them starting with your dual nature of all people, is that you are both eternal and current. And so there's an eternal part in you that you must search, that you must find. And I think that we were dominated primarily by European society, their, their values. And they were not a people that practiced anything like that. They, uh, their their uh, expertise in cosmic relationships is very weak. You go back to people like Tycho Brahe, and you go back to the Moors of Spain, and you go deeper into the real European history, and there was no concern about the cosmic uh, order. Now, you've got Stonehenge, and you've got evidence of other uh, monuments in Europe to that, but the basic European people today, or uh, even four, 500 years ago, ignored that. They were not a part of that. You go into the Teutons and the Gauls and the Visigoths, and uh, uh, those uh, tribes that discovered gunpowder and got out on the high seas and, you know, invaded all these places and people, that's the dominant energy here now. That's what the politics are fighting over, you know. You, you've got all this wealth here, and people are talking about budgetary concerns because somebody is, with greed has stolen more than their share, and the people who have common needs could easily be satisfied if people share. So I'm saying what I, my position is, is that it's ignorance that's causing this, and the people who know better do not dispel this ignorance. They, they feed off of it. They profit from it. And I hope you can put this out wherever. So, <laughs> so, so if a person is looking at being eternal and being current, yes, and, you, and you're suggesting that they look within their eternity and, 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 and apply that to how they're actually being currently. You have to tune up to that. Okay, so how if do you, you do don't, that? Well, it's not a simple process. So, 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 so how do you begin? I'll give Say you some ideas. Step, I'll give you step. some ideas. It's study what other people already know. Okay. A good example is in Ghana, they teach the children in the old society that uh, it's a study called Incabrea. And Incabrea uh, means that everyone is born here by permission. They're granted permission to come into this life. And so... Uh, when they come here, they have to deal with why they want to come in this life and what they can contribute. And once they uh, agree to allow them in this life, then they come, they enter in a mother in the gestation period. And when they are born, they forget why they come here. And it's the community's job to look at the talents and the attributes of this child and remind him or her 
what your forte or what your gift is and that it belongs to the community, not to a mother, not to a father. The child belongs to the community. And so it's raised like that. And eventually, as it tunes up to its incubator, then it's a much more effective person. They might be a weaver or a pottery maker, whatever. And so this is the way that just one culture, but there are many cultures you can mm-hmm. study possibly right here in this library yeah. that will that deal with eternity. So me, music is the language, is the cosmic language, is mm-hmm. the divine language. I believe from what I've studied over 60 years that the first people sang before they talked. They sang many generations, before, and, and language is a derivative of song. The spin itself yes. is singing. Yes, it is. That, that's already song. It, it's song. Yeah. And so uh, music today has more effect on people than any other entity. This is why our young people have been corrupted so much to uh, adhering to corrupt music. You see, you can turn that music around and put people of substance playing music and it's another thing. Uh, and I want to take this plug right now for my sons. That's why they're doing so well. <laughs> because they're playing, they're using cosmic principles in their music and, and uh, the intonation, intonation invigorates people. And it's life-giving music. It's not, it doesn't subtract from you. It gives you life. When we were in France um, back in November, I, I've been performing all over, you know, but I, the crowd began to cheer before we went on stage. I never heard anything like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, just a massive, you know, because of what they were expecting. Mm-hmm. And then when we, when they got through, the, they had encores over and over until they finally said, "Well, this is it," <laughs> you know. But they're responding to it, and what they're responding to is something internal. And so I'm saying you start with music, good music, uh, proper music. You listen to the song, <clears throat> the person that put that song out, what level of intelligence or commitment or sensitivity does that person have? If you listen to that, then that's what you're absorbing, the mentality of an ingrate in some cases, <laughs> you know. So we've got to correct that music that you listen to and explain to people how and why. That's a good way to go inside because we all have these spiritual gifts, these internal gifts, but they're not cultivated and they're certainly not developed in children. So we, the children have it naturally. They come here with Incabrea. But, <clears throat> you know, this society pushes it away. No, you can't do that. You've got to become uh, a machine. You know, I look at, go back to the comics, you know, Flash Garden and all these guys. The future has everything in it but trees and grass. <laughs> the advanced future of people. You it's know. one of the reasons why I asked you, the first thing I asked you was, what is your vision for the future of this planet, because I, I, I see us 
coming into a, a greater nature. We already here. The harmonious. That's what know, I meant space, about the. You know? That's what I meant about the uh, precession of the equinox. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what it does. See, it's a new cycle starting again. Yeah. Twenty-five thousand nine hundred twenty years. This is a new cycle. We're beginning. And so, in this beginning, we'll go through what we've gone through before. As Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just a spiral. You know, we might be a little further this way or that way, but we're going through the same things. And I, I can't uh, say what all is in, in that cycle, but if you look at your last 25,000-year history, you'll see a pattern of what we are entering now. Can you, can you talk about the galactic center? Can you talk about, so we're, we're oriented around our sun. Yeah, yes. But what about when we the look at the... black hole, is all of that. What about when we look at the picture even, even bigger? Yes, that, now, might, that, that might give people a sense of how they relate to their world. Well, in, that's one good thing. And I, I said that everything has its meaning. For instance, we had to go down to get up. It's just like in your life. You know, people are looking for pleasure. Are they looking for a good life? But life isn't good. Life is a lesson. You go down and up. Some of your lessons are very intense. You lose loved ones that are close to you. You have great disappointments. At one time, I had a theater hold 2,000 people, and that's where those records come from. One day I looked up, Bopley was all gone. And I, I mean, I, uh, I had to go on welfare. <laughs> you understand? See, life is like that. But, you know, life is a lesson. It's not for you to be broken or despondent or expecting certain things. Life is to learn how to take the rhythm and harmony of life because all things go through these cycles. You follow? Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's the knowledge that has to get out there for people uh, to progress and to find the right things that they are looking for. I say in my 85 years, when I look back, I'm very pleased, you know, but I had a lot of rough spots in it. Yeah. Being black in America probably got more than most people, and a man even worse, <laughs> you know. And but a musician. Oh, yeah, yeah, put that to it. <laughs> yeah. but, but, you know, the heart really balanced all of it for me because just to be able to play the heart, uh, there's no way that I could get down now that I can't go and play it for maybe uh, a few minutes or an hour and feel glad that I'm here. You know, it's really a great privilege. And I didn't t tell you what really solidified my studies for the sky is that I wanted to get this heart. And back in 1964, Lionel Healy put a big uh, troubadour harp in his window. That was the first attempt to make a harp without pedals, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was looking for. Uh, and I said, I got to get this harp, you know. But it cost quite a bit of money. So at the same time, they announced examinations for a fingerprint technician with the Chicago Police Department. And they were going to train the people, but they had to have a scientific background. Well, you know, I'm a chemist, and uh, uh, I was always into math and, and the sciences. So I went down and took the exam and placed number 90 out of 3,000. And uh, I got on, and they taught me the fingerprints. All right? They required us to do seven fingerprints a night. They bring in prints from all the different districts in the city. And uh, they have 10 million prints in their library there. All right? 
I started working as many as I could. And at the same time, I, uh, they transferred us from one shift to the next. You work a month, day shift, a month, evening shift, then a month, midnight, you know. And everyone hated that, but they, the police did this to keep you from developing friendships with other people, you know. And what I decided to do was to stay on the midnight shift all the time so I could go over in the park and observe the heavens. And so there was an ideal spot there for that. So I'd take lunch around 2 o'clock in the morning and go over and look at the stars every night. And uh, it hit me one night. I'm looking at, I'm working all these prints, and on the prints, they got the rap sheet. Mm -hmm. They got the birthday of all the prisoners that are taken. And so I began to relate to the prints I was working according to the position of the cosmos. And over three years, I developed a wealth of information, which was a rare privilege. And I feel that was my ancestors blessing me because I was working and willing to do the work. And you raised the money for the harp doing it as well? That's right. That's what the job did. The minute I got the job, they signed my name. <laughs> Because I was waiting for the police department to say, you cleared. <laughs> Do you still have that harp? That's the one I play. It is. At Ethiopian Diamond. <laughs> yeah, at the Ethiopian Diamond. I love it. I open up with it, and I, a lot of times I close with it. But uh, that's what, you know, I've got another story. A little girl is two years old. She's been coming to the Ethiopian since she was uh, a year and a half, so six months. And she makes her parents bring her there. And she comes up to the stage and let me know she's there. And I play the harp or the francophone for her, and she does some dances that there's no way she could have studied that, you know. She's in her eternity. Mm -hmm. And she tells her parents, musician. <laughs> and they have to bring her around to see me play. I was yeah. going to ask you what your symbol meant, but now after talking to you, it's very clear what it means to me. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it's a symbol of eternity. Yes, it is. Uh, this comes from an end of Bailey village uh, in 1958. When I was reading a National Geographic magazine, I saw this symbol on the village walls that um, the, uh, the men make the village the crawl where they all live, and then the women have to paint it. He paints it white, and then they put these symbols on it. It's the end of Bailey. Uh, there's a book on it. Probably it might have it here. And uh, they have various symbols. But that one hit me like a brick. Mm -hmm. Because of studying math, I recognized the sinic curve right away. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, um, this two, you know, the two sinic curves mean the crossification, which is the uh, equinox. And uh, so I said, there's two, two of these X's there. And I read that. And uh, this is symbol reading now. When you read symbols, you read cosmic symbols, all right? There are four dips in there, which mean the four faces of the moon. And then the, the two equinoxes mean the vernal and the autumnal equinox. Now, when you go into that line, why are those two connected? It tells you this is the time of our people. That straight line mm -hmm. represents the people. So I adopted it as my symbol in a time when no one used symbols for things except to sell some goods. And... Uh, as later on, I said that this symbol represents my integrity mm -hmm. of my purpose in life. 
And so it's on everything. I put it on all my instruments. Yeah. And uh, I had a all big records. I had a big one. I painted a big one on my wall in the house. Mm -hmm. So every day, you know, it permeates the whole my whole world, you know, because that's connecting with who I am. Yeah. Yeah. I've known that I've, I have Andy Bailey blood. I mean, I don't need no scientific tests. Sun Ra encouraged us to, to be free and express ourselves with whatever means we could find. And Marshall Allen made an instrument. He put a, I think he put a clarinet mouthpiece on a flute or something like that. And he made some. So I was going to the museum, and they had a little instrument with about five keys on it from Senegambia in the museum. I said, I believe I can do that, you know. And so the day that I decided to make my instrument, the, uh, I went outside later on that afternoon, and there were keys laying in the street. They looked like staves that come out of a corset or something. I don't know what they were, but they were all down the street. They apparently had fallen off a truck. So I picked them up, and I made my first instruments out of that. And it didn't ring. But what I always wanted was a ring. See how long it rang? I didn't want something to thump, 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 I wanted a ring because <clears throat> the ring is the thing that has the spin in it. That's spin when you get a good ring. Let me pull this over here a little bit. See, now, it's pleasant to listen to, but it's ancestral. It's an instrument that people had not heard in this society. And so when I played it, they liked it, but, you know, they didn't know what it was. There was a fascination there that was beyond that grass. And what I deduced is that you were listening to it with your eternal spirit, not your conscious spirit, your eternal spirit. And... Uh, as I played it, we developed audiences that, that exploded everywhere. And that's why Maurice copied this uh, and uh, all the other people. But first people to copy were in Africa. They, uh, they made an instrument called a kalimba. And I uh, got a guy named Hugh Tracy. And so uh, his first album had nothing in the back, nothing in the back. But I had two, two holes in the back so I could do this. So the Kalimba came out with two holes in the back. The first one came, had one hole in the front. So then they put two holes in the back, which I knew they were copying me because with the hole in the front, it would take away the effect of the hole in the back. So they were just merely copying my instrument. Where would they develop the popularity to sell instruments? Nobody knew what it was. No one would use it. It was on the uh, books for copyright in the 1930s. No one knew what to do with it. Somebody brought it back from Africa and copyrighted it, and, and there was, they just sit there. But once they heard me play and draw thousands of people to uh, the, on the beach celebration in Chicago Lakefront, 
and uh, and the theater and various places I went, then that became a market for it because people watch everything we do, you know, including the color of our toilet paper. So uh, that was how the instrument proliferated in America. Now, everywhere I go, people say, oh, I know what this is. I got one, you know. So fine. But do you understand the dynamics of this? Because it required me to play another system. I had to play a melodic system. Uh, ancient music is based on melodies and rhythm, which is melodic. The music we play today is based on chords, satisfying the condition of your melody that goes from one chord, one group of notes, to another note. See, so that's vertical thinking. And I created the linear thinking. See, it rings. That's what I wanted mine to do. And so I was very fortunate when I got it up to the model that I wanted. I found uh, one company in Chicago that had the last type of spring steel that I used. And so uh, I bought everything he had. I bought all of his spring steel, and they don't make it anymore. That was the last of the virgin steel. So this instrument is rare because of the keys. If they try to duplicate it now, they might come close, I guess. Enough people have photographed me to du duplicate it in some way. But when I hook it up, I, I had a record player. I can't remember the name of it, but it was a very expensive record player because I like music. <clears throat> and it had an auxiliary outlet, an input in there. And they came out with these Japanese lapel mics. Uh, in the 60s, 1960. And I got one of those and tried it in my auxiliary outlet and said, bam! I said, now nah, I can play with a band, you know? And so I found an old Supro amp that uh, guitar players had used with. There weren't many electronic instruments out there. And you know, Sun Ra advised Moog on making his, his uh, synthesizer. <clears throat> because he was at several of our sessions getting, uh, trying, giving Sun Ra some of his, one thing called a clavelin and some other stuff. And so I knew I was, actually we would have, I say, pioneers in electronic music. In so, what context did you first play that live? I played it with Sun Ra. I also played my zither. I didn't bring that, but you see it tonight. Uh, and I've spent more time developing my zither and my harp now. But uh, every night I have to play at least, you know, every other number has to be Francophone <coughs> where I perform because the people demand it. And the little girl I told you about, just two years old, that's when she really stretches out and I play this one. She goes off. <laughs> do, you, do you ever hand the Francophone over to her? To no, play? I don't do that. And she didn't require it. You know, she just want to hear it. Yeah. And then I don't like people to touch it. One time I was playing uh, in my theater, and I came down off the stage with it in my hand, you know. And the guy said, let me see that, Phil. So, you know, I, I let him look at it, and he took it and played it. And the rest of the night, my instrument was dead, no matter what I did to it. It was spiritually zonked. So I don't let people touch my instruments. Where's Atama? Is he still here? He's still here. It was, you know, I just wanted, he'll tell you that they don't, I don't let any of them touch my instruments. They have to get their own. <laughs> how, do, how does it feel when it's in your hands? What kind of feeling do you get? I can't just, you know, I can't go into those type of things. That's not important, you know. Yeah. What's important is that it becomes a part of you. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. What is your name in your drive? Frankie Vaughn. Frankie Vaughn. Yeah, my mother's name. My mother's name was Frankie Mae. And so she was a very strong uh, advocate of making money. <laughs> and so I said, this would be my gift because as I studied, I became very poor. You know, I wasn't about to work for anybody. And uh, what happened, I said, when I got this, I said, well, I'll name this after her and maybe I'll patent it and get rich and, uh, you know, she'll be impressed. But I went to a fellow who had invented some other items, and he advised me not to patent my instrument. He said, the minute you patent it, they'll put it on the market and then uh, take you to court with, their, with the money they made off your instrument. It's because they're in a superior position. They can make 200000 of these and have them on the market in three weeks. <laughs> so I didn't patent mine, and they didn't get it. <clears throat> And so my mother never was impressed, but uh, I named it after her because she was uh, responsible for my music education. She sent me to take music lessons from the age nine on, sent me to Lincoln University, the best school they had for blacks, and when I was 14. And so I named it after her. Did your mother ever hear you play? Yeah, lots of times. Yeah, she'd be going to honors where I was honored and things like that. But she's heard it, but, she, you know, it just wasn't her thing. You know, I don't know how she felt about it. She never really expressed anything to me. Yeah. I have a question for you. Um, let's be the last one. Sure. Um, you obviously grew up in a musical home. Um, I've talked to your yeah, sons. I know Mark. School. Well, but you talked to your, oh, you your son. That. That's him. Yeah. Did your children have to play every day, or was it a mandatory, or was it mandatory. all? Can you explain a little? Because I've heard the story, but I want to hear it. Well, the thing that impressed me about Sunra, I had been playing for years and years. I thought I was a good musician. I thought I was really on my way to stardom. And when I ran into Sonny, Gilmore and I played some jobs together. And so he said, I'm going to take you by rehearsal. So when I went to Sunday's rehearsal, we started rehearsing a couple of hours. Next thing was three hours. Next thing, pretty soon we were rehearsing six hours a day and playing six hours a night, seven days a week. And so I was shocked because my instrument, I could do things with it that I didn't even know I had that kind of ability, you know. It really became a voice uh, from so much rehearsing. And so I became an advocate uh, of being radical musician <laughs> to play all the time. And that was the secret I learned from Sun Ra. He didn't do anything but music every day, all his life. That was his, that was his uh, gift to the planet. And so when I used that and I, I held my children, I shared that with them. You know, I practiced and they practiced and they all... My older kids became very good, too. They had a group called Ultimate Image, five of them, four of them. And uh, they became outstanding. They were on a couple of TV shows and everything. But they argued and fussed and split up. And so one runs entertainment at Navy Pier uh, in Chicago. Another one is a tax official. And another one plays expensive weddings and things like that. 
and the other girl is a singer. She doesn't do anything. So my house is established that music is it because I'm going to be in music every day and I couldn't be with my children unless they were with music, you see? So that's what I do now, that they all grown <clears throat> and grown up. I'm into music every day. I mean, it's like a holiday, you know, seven days a week. So that's how they got into it. They hated it when they were little. Some of them did, you know. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> so when I went to China, there was a big gap, about two weeks. And when I came back, they said, well, we don't want to play anymore. I said, well, okay. You know, you got that right. You know, they were big enough. I had them eight years. I said, that's enough time. <laughs> so they quit playing. They put the instrument down. Where's Otama? Yeah. yeah. Why the horn? Or why not the wind instrument? Like... Well, I took yoga in 61, I, well, you see. And so I took yoga from a breath master in India. Uh, that's why I, I'm against books. You know, books on yoga is a joke. <clears throat> you have to have it from the voice. Uh, but he taught me breath techniques. And I think that that has a lot to do with my age and my vitality is the breath techniques that I learn and employ on playing brass instruments. So that's why I play French horn, flugelhorn, and cornet. Although I'm pretty advanced in age to be playing those instruments. But uh, uh, I'm certain that it has a lot to do with my vitality through my lungs. Do you still practice yoga? Yes, I, in fact, I did a three hour, 45 minute uh, session on the plane here. You know, I don't know what the people thought about it, but I mean, I froze. So, <laughs> the, the, the long tone. Can you just explain what the long tone is? Well, I don't. I don't want to go too much off into that. You know, everybody be out here long tone. Somebody fall out and crack their skull. But what's you know? short <laughs> definition of? <laughs> All right, I, I, I'll give you a definition. Of it. You, you're trying to extract everything you no, get. No, I just want to learn. So. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> well, long time is very simple. It's just like this. a long time. In Conversation was produced by DubLab, a nonprofit radio station broadcasting live from Los Angeles since 1999. Sound editing and theme song by Matea Bame. For more programming, visit dublab.com. And thank you for listening.